Well, we've been to church already, haven't we? You can be seated. Our choir is going to head down at this time. Matthew, I'm going to put this in this first pew so that you know. Hey, Addie. Wow. Would you join me this morning in uh, Matthew's Gospel, 5th chapter? Matthew's Gospel, 5th chapter. As you're turning there, a quick question. Who among you remembers the TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You have just been dated. You have dated yourself. I don't watch much television. I've shared that with you before. I, unless it's uh, Gunsmoke, Andy Griffith Show. Is anybody out there want to say amen here? All right. Or wrestling. Anybody else? There we go. I don't watch much television outside of those shows, but be a millionaire. I was fascinated by it. And if you're unfamiliar with the show, there was a guy named Regis Philbin. If I'm not mistaken, he's passed away. Is that right? Regis Philbin passed away. But he was the host of this show, and he would bring on a contestant. And he would ask an ever-increasing difficulty series of questions. With each one that the contestant got right, there was an ever-increasing sum of money. And if he got it wrong, he would lose money, and the game would be over. But to add to the drama of the show, do you all, you all remember this, right? Each contestant was given three what? Lifelines. Lifelines. And the lifelines were this. You could pick and choose one of the lifelines was to ask an audience member. So if there was a question that stumped me, I would ask one of y'all. I don't know if that would work out well or not. <laughs> Another lifeline would be to 50-50. It would be to cut two of the answers away, so there was only two left. It was multiple choice. And the last lifeline would be to phone a friend. Do y'all remember this? Do you have somebody that you would call? You ever thought about that if you were on this? Have somebody you would call? Well, that was the other lifeline. Well, there was a contestant on that show named John Carpenter. And John Carpenter blazed through each of the questions with absolute ease. He had no problems, and he got all the way to the million-dollar question without using a single lifeline. When Regis finally got to that million-dollar question, it was this. You ready for it? Who was the last American president to appear on the TV show Laugh-In? John Carpenter was not old enough to have watched the show Laugh-In. He probably wasn't old enough to even know what Laugh-In was. He certainly wasn't old enough to have lived during the presidencies of, of any of the multiple choice answers. Here they were, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, or Gerald Ford. Anybody want to guess on that? Got, got Gerald Ford, any others? Nixon, Jimmy Carter. I'm glad y'all weren't on this show <laughs> since the show had started. Looked genuinely confused. He asked Regis, he said, can I use a lifeline? Regis said, yes, which one? He said, phone a friend. And John Carpenter called his daddy. His daddy would have been old enough to have watched the television show Laugh-In, would have lived during the time of each of those American presidencies. The phone rung, you hear his dad answer the phone, hello. And here's what Carpenter said, something that shocked Regis. The studio audience, everyone watching on television, including me. He didn't ask his father for advice. He didn't even share the question. 
that Regis asked him, he simply made this statement. Hi, Dad. It's John. I just wanted to call and tell you that your son is going to be a millionaire. <laughs> he turned to Regis with a smile and he said, Richard Nixon appeared on Laugh-In on the campaign trail in 1968, and that is my final answer. Tim, you were wrong. You guessed wrong a while ago. With that, John Carpenter became the first millionaire in the show's history. But I thought about that with a million dollars on the line. I could spend that in a Bass Pro Shop in about an hour and a half. But it's still a lot of money. With a million dollars on the line and an opportunity to get counsel, advice from someone who may know the answer or, or simply maybe even uh, help him to solidify what he already thought. Without a doubt in his mind, John Carpenter said, your son is about to be a millionaire. What a bold statement that was. But as bold as that statement is, it pales in comparison to what Jesus says in the beatitude that we're studying this morning. If you're a guest here with us, we've been studying through the first few verses of Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the introductory remarks to the Sermon on the Mount. And in these first few verses, we've learned some attitudes that should be, the, the beatitudes. And we've pointed out over the last few weeks that each of these beatitudes contains a promise and a premise. Each one. So, for instance, we learned in the very first week, there's a promise of inheriting the kingdom of God. But the premise, those who are poor in spirit. We have a promise of comfort, premise to those who are mourning. We have a promise of inheriting the earth. The premise, though, must be meek. Promise of being satisfied in Jesus. The premise, we have a promise we saw two weeks ago of mercy. But the premise is those who are merciful. Those who are merciful. Well, this morning is no different. We have a promise, but we also have a premise. In Matthew chapter 5, verse number 8, Jesus says these words, Blessed are the pure in heart. Listen. For they shall see God. What a promise, right? They shall see God. In light of what seems to be a great awakening of sorts, at least the beginning of a great awakening of sorts happening on college campuses all over our nation, my own heart, my heart for our church family, I'm struck by the wonder of this promise. They shall see God. That's become the greatest desire of my life. I desperately want to see God. I, I want to see Him one day, and we're going to talk about that, but I want to see Him move right now. I, I want to see a mighty movement of God. I want to see that in my own life. I desire to see that in my own family. I desire to see that in our church family. I, I desire to see it in our community, certainly in our nation. I want, I want to see Him do something in us and through us that has no human explanation. It's something that could only be attributed to the power of God and the presence of God in our lives. I pray that's the heart's desire of all of us because that's what we're promised here. They shall see God. 
And, and while we will see God, all of those who are in Christ in the sweet by and by, and we sang about that land that is fairer than day. Who's looking forward to that, by the way? We know that will take place. We believe by faith that will take place. Our faith will one day become our sight. We will see God. He will be our God. We will be His people. He will dwell among His people in the new Jerusalem. We praise God for that, but that's not what our passage is actually talking about. Our faith will become sight. We glory in that thought. We, we glory in that thought. We long for that day. We believe by faith it will come to pass. But what happens in the sweet by and by is not what this text is talking about because when it says they shall see God in the original languages this is written in the present what's what's happening here this solidifies for us why we could say with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 13 you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart what we're talking about when we see this, these words, this promise, they shall see God, is talking about truly experiencing the presence and the power of God, not just in the sweet by and by, but even in the nasty here and now. This is not an unprecedented desire to see God move in our personal lives and in our families and in our churches. Moses in Exodus 33, he desired to see the glory of God. In John chapter 14, Philip desired to see the Father. This is not unprecedented in our desire. This is not unsubstantiated. First Chronicles chapter 16, 11. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. In fact, one of the distinguishing marks of a person who does not have a regenerated heart, one of the distinguishing marks of a person who does not know Jesus is that there will be an absence of a desire. That's why Romans chapter 3, verse 11 says, speaking of those who are lost, they have no desire to see God. There are none who seek after God. I'm of the firm conviction that those who know the Lord, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, have experienced His mercy and His grace, should only grow in their desire to see Him move. To experience Him in our own lives. The older I've gotten, the more that passion has expanded. And it has grown in my life. I'm afraid that one of the reasons seeing God in, in powerful ways in our personal lives and the lives of our families and the lives of our churches is because that desire has waned for some reason. M maybe it is we've grown comfortable with checking boxes. I've been to church today. I've placed my offering in the plate. I've said my prayers. Maybe we've grown comfortable. Maybe that's it. Maybe it is that some of us have gotten calloused hearts. We've grown calloused. And, and, and in our unbelief that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still the God of today, we, we begin to doubt that we could experience God in powerful ways today. Maybe we have a contrived notion of what experiencing God looks like. One of the most discouraging things for me is, is God has been moving across college campuses all over our nation are the number of brothers and sisters that say, no, -uh. that's not happening because they didn't sing the right song. 
They, they weren't using the right Bible translation. They, they, we can go on and on and on here. We've, we've decided here's a box and God's got a fix in it. We don't have the authority to put God in any kind of box. He's going to do what he is going to do. And here's what we know. The narrative of Scripture, God rarely moves in ways that fits in anybody's box. In fact, God rarely moves in ways that anyone saw coming. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord for us. The heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I was thinking about that. Elijah, Elijah had collapsed. He had collapsed in exhaustion. He was hiding out in one of the caves in Horeb. He, he desperately needed to experience God. And he was sure that I'm going I'm to experience God in the fire the majesty of a fire, the, the strength of an earthquake. But God shows up in a way that he didn't see coming. A still, small voice. I think about Moses, a fugitive, out in the fields of Midian, tending his father-in-law, Jethro's flocks. He desperately needed to experience the power and presence of the living God. He appears to him in a way that was unexpected. A burning bush. Remember this story? I think about Saul of Tarsus as, as he was Christians. He desperately needed to experience God. And he encountered him in a way that he never anticipated. A voice boomed from heaven, putting him on his blessed assurance and calling him to go to a street called Straight where he would be converted to. The blindness would fall off of his eyes like scale, making him the apostle to the Gentiles. The point I'm trying to make is, if, if we're not experiencing the awesome power of God in, in our individual lives, and in the lives of our family, and the lives of our churches, and the life of our nation, it's not because the awesome power of God is not present or available. That's not it. I know that because the same God who spoke the universe into existence, who created mankind, breathed life into his nostrils, the same God that parted rivers and seas and crumbled Jericho's walls, the same God that made dry bones dance is alive today. The same God who calls deaf men to hear and lame men to leap and blind men to see and dead men to walk, he's alive today. The same God who called Moses to lead, who called disciples to follow, who called Lazarus to come forth is alive today. The same God who transformed water into wine, fishermen into apostles, the scandalous woman at the well into a portrait of mercy and grace. The same God who transformed a band of disciples gathered behind locked doors and praying into a force called the church is alive today. The same God who provided manna for Israel, a firm foundation for David to stand, who provided an opportunity for the woman who was drugged into the streets by a bloodthirsty mob with stones in hand for her sin and forgave her. The same God who rose to his feet after three days in a borrowed tomb, appeared to thousands, ascended into his heaven, took his seat at God's right hand, has promised to come again, and is the King of kings and Lord of lords forevermore. He's still alive 
today. He's still here. He's still present. And the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 8, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So with that in mind, the promise of our text, it's, it's not so wild, is it? They shall see God. Think about inspiring, unchanging, incomparable God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in our lives, personally. And in the life of your family, the life of our church, the life of our community. What a promise, amen? We could see that. But there's a premise. Like the other Beatitudes, there's a premise. Blessed are the pure in heart. Say that with me. Blessed are the pure in heart. One more time. Blessed are the pure in heart. We found our premise. Promise is there. There's a premise. There, there are two types of purity that I want to talk about for the next couple of minutes. The first is what we're going to call a positional purity. Those who see God will have had a positional purity. A positional purity. You underline the word pure in your Bible. The Greek word that's used there is catharsis. Catharsis. While the scriptures speak of the purity, speak this word purity over and over and over again in the Old and the New Testament, the word that's used here is not speaking of an inherent purity. A purity that just has always been and will always be. That's not the word that's used here. In the text, that word is used in the Old and New Testament when referencing the purity of God. God has a purity that is inherent, it's always been. There's never been a moment in which our God wasn't totally pure. There'll never be a moment in which our God is not totally pure. When the scriptures speak of God, Psalm 18, 26, you show yourself pure. That word means you've always been that way. It's always been that way. When the Bible speaks of itself, Psalm 126, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. The Bible that you hold has always been pure. It's inherently pure. It's part of the character, the nature, the makeup of its purity. This is the absence, eternal absence of impurity. There will never be a time, there will never be a moment when the character, the nature, the essence of God and His Word has been polluted. He's inherently pure. That's not the catharsis, the purity that's spoken of in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 8. None among us can boast of an eternal absence of impurity. Not one of us. We learned about that in our very first week together. We're not pure. That's our problem. We're contaminated. That's our problem. You should look at my life. I use my manners. I'm good. Did you know that a Snickers bar, I was going to bring one with me today. I left it in my office. Daryl gave me a Snickers bar the other day, and I have it. And I was going to use it as an illustration. A Snickers bar looks good, doesn't it? Now, some of you say no. I hope you'll get right with God one day. <laughs> Snickers bars are wonderful. They look clean, they look pure, but you know that the average Snickers bar contains, on average, at least eight insect parts. I'm sorry. Be the bearer of bad news, but it's true. 
Researchers have concluded that at some point between the moment a cocoa bean is harvested and the moment in a factory it's turned into a piece of milk chocolate, all types of insects, from flies to cockroaches, find their way into the process. And they're unable to filter all of this completely out. You should not be thinking about lunch right now. I did my job. <laughs> Just because something appears to be clean and pure and pristine, it doesn't mean that it is. If you're one who would say, look at my life, I am clean, I am pure, I am pristine. Listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In fact, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Very first beatitude, we're spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing in us that would commend us to God. We are not clean. We are not clean. We're born into sin and transgressions with an endemic nature. We're in need of something outside of ourselves to make us pure. That's the word that's used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, for purity, catharsis. It's something that has been made pure, not something that has always been pure the word pure here in our text speaks of those who were at one time dirty those who are at one time spotted those who were at one time blemished but have been made clean how does that happen flip over with me to the 15th psalm just for a moment david asked a jarring question in the first verse of psalm 15 david asked this question lord who may abide in your tabernacle. Who may dwell in your holy hill? In essence the question is this. Lord. Who will see you? Who's going to be able to stand before you? He who walks uprightly. Who works righteousness. Speaks the truth in his heart. Who does not backbite with his tongue. Or do evil to his neighbor. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors, the Lord, honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at a usury or take a bribe against the innocent. Who, who will see you, Lord? David asked. Who will stand before you in your tabernacle, in your presence? And the answer indicates none of us. Because none of us have walked uprightly perfectly all the time. None of us have always worked righteousness in thought, deed, or motive perfectly all of the time. None of us have been able to check any of these boxes that are listed by David here in this text of who will stand before God. So is there hope? How can we be made positionally pure that we might stand positionally before God? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in Him, that's Jesus. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of His grace. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this, If you check all the boxes, you're good. If you mind your manners, you're fine. Is that what it says? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
Who can stand before Him? There's only one person who can stand before Him. The one who has been washed by the blood of the Lamb. The one who has been to the cross and said, I am not good enough for heaven. But I trust you. I trust you are who you say that you are. Accomplished what you say that you accomplished. Dying on the cross for my sins. Lord, forgive me for my sins, my trespasses, my iniquity. Save me. The Bible says that's what will take place. I'll be made positionally pure. Notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are pure in language, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are pure in dress, for they shall see God. Blessed are those. Listen, you can do all of those things yourself without His help. Your language can be cleaned up. Should it be? Yes, by the way, if you're in Christ. But that's not getting you into heaven. Could you, could you dress the part? Yes, you could dress the part. Could you check all the religion? You could do all of those things yourself. But positional purity, seeing God in eternal life requires something you can't do. And I can't do. But only Jesus could do. And when we ask Him to forgive us and cleanse us, here's what happens. Isaiah 1.18 Though your sins are scarlet, they should be white as snow. That's what Jesus does. We shall see God when we're positionally pure. But the text again is written in the present tense. How does a saved person who is positionally pure, when, when God looks at me, He doesn't see my sin, He sees Christ. That's my position. I'll see Him. How does a saved person, though, attain this promise here on earth? That they would see God. This is not positional purity, but progressive purity. When we place our faith in Christ, we are, we are wrapped in His righteousness. Praise God for that. It's imputed upon us. We're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, making us positionally pure. But that doesn't mean immediately our lives are going to be completely pure, does it? doesn't mean immediately that, that our thoughts are going to be pure all of the time. Our motives are going to be pure all the time. Our actions are going to be pure all the time. At the moment of our conversion, though, when we, we're, we're positionally pure, we've been made pure, positionally, a process begins called sanctification. That's a cleansing. And it's a cleansing that begins at the moment of my conversion, and it continues throughout the duration of my life. And, and I don't care how long you are in Christ, how long you've been in the Christian. Let me tell you something you have in common. You ain't arrived yet. You still need cleansing. I still need cleansing. That's what sanctification is. And through this process of sanctification, God cleaning us, enabling us to be more like Jesus, we're being made progressively more pure and more pure and more pure each day. There's, there's a thousand different ways, and we don't have the time to go through an exhaustive list of the ways He accomplishes this. We could talk about suffering. Do you know that God uses suffering to make us pure, make us clean? But, but the primary ways in which God sanctifies us are them in truth. For your word is truth. Do you understand what we're doing right now? This is not just a box to check on. What we're doing right now is involving the sanctification process in our lives. It's we're hearing the word preached. As we sat in small groups, the Word of God being taught. This is part of that process. 
y'all, what we're do- I know our culture looks at what we're doing right now and, and says there are better things to do with your time. If you're in Christ, there's not a better thing to do with your time than gather with the body of Christ on the Lord's day and be sanctified by His Word. The, the people of God sanctify us. That's one of the reasons we gather today. God uses His people to purify His church. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Hebrews 10.24 Let us consider how to stir up one another. To stir, stir on one another to good works. But also we're sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit. First Peter when he is addressing um, the elect of God, the, the church, those who are in Christ, who are being sanctified by the Spirit, he, he says this sanctification is going to do a couple of things. It's going to produce some pure fruit. Galatians 5, 22 and 25, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's pure love. It's joy, it's peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. There's a a pure fruit that's going to be produced in sanctification by the Holy Spirit in us. It's pure lives, conviction, wisdom, discernment. These are things that the Holy Spirit is producing in us. He's doing in every believer after admonishing the, the, the Corinthian church in, in the second letter to the Corinthians in the sixth chapter, he, he implores them to live holy lives. And he asks questions, difficult questions like this. What, what fellowship does the light have with darkness? What fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship does, does, do the people of God have with idols? He states that those who believe are the temple of God and the Spirit of God has taken up residence in us. And he quotes from Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah reminding the church in Corinth, reminding you and I that God desires to dwell among us and do great works among us. Second verse with these words in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises that God desires to dwell among us, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of the Lord. James, half-brother of Jesus, after asking the church in Jerusalem, why do you think it is that you have, that you ask and do not have, that you want and do not obtain? He answers, James 4, 7 through 10, submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Listen, cleanse your hands. You sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Both James and John use the same language here. Speaking of those who are in Christ, positionally. Cleanse yourselves. That's not to say that we can forgive our own sins. But rather... That we have the ability, and yes, the responsibility to strive for holiness. To cast aside anything that might pollute our hearts, that might soil our testimony by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. This is progressive sanctification. And as this process continues, here's what happens. If, if progressively, 
I'm seeing my sin removing anything that might hinder my relationship with God. I, I began to hear God in fresh ways. I began to hear God speak through the sound of an instrument, Matthew, played to his glory. I began to hear God speak through the sound of my granddaughter when she coos. I began to hear God speak when my Bible fellowship teacher opens the word and begins to explain. I began to hear the voice of God. I began to see God. These are in just ordinary way. I began to see God in a sunrise that I no longer take for granted. I began to see God in the faces and countenance of brothers and sisters in Christ. I began to see God in encouragement from them. I began to see God in the ordinary. But I also began to see Him in extraordinary ways. When that progressive purity is taking place, I began to see God as He moves in my family, in my church, in my community. I began to see Him in circumstances that I maybe couldn't see Him before, but, but now, even hard times, even difficult times, dark times, I begin to see the, the will of God in this. I see how He's working all things together for my good and for His glory. I couldn't see it before, but with purity, I start to see it. I start to see it in fresh ways. I start to see it in answers to prayer. I start to see it in, in joy that, that I have within me that cannot be contained. I start to see God. This promise that we have, they shall see God, it's a glorious promise, but it's conditional. There is a premise. You want to see God eternally? That requires positional purity. Jesus has to make you clean. Honest Him alone for salvation. Those who are in Christ, we desire to see God experientially. That requires progressive purity. As the Spirit works in us, we, we get under the authority of the Word. God begins to clean some things up. By the way, it's not always a pleasant process. The rough edges, He chips them away through this, this process. Richard Owen Roberts said it this way, The essential element of revival is holiness. It's purity. We desire to see God in our own lives, brothers and sisters, experientially His power, personally, family, church, nation. There's a progressive purity that needs to be accomplished, that needs to be happening in our lives. As the musicians come forward with our heads bowed and eyes closed, here's what I would say to you in closing. We're going to sing a song of invitation. I would ask this simple question of you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, are you positionally pure? If you stood before God on this day, if you stood before God on this day, would He see your sin? We've already established we've all sinned and fallen short of His glory. Would, would He look upon your sin? If the answer to this is yes, what would the consequences be? Well, the Bible teaches that God is just. 
A just judge must punish sin. If a judge didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be a good judge at all. If you heard a news story this afternoon, come across your clicker on your news service that said there was a judge that was presiding over a case, and a man came in and admitted to murdering a family and burning their house down. But the judge, because he was a nice judge, he, he let the murderer go. You know what you'd say about that judge? Rightfully so, you would say he's evil. That's an evil judge because he was not a just judge. Because God is just, he must punish sin. And the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. They're consequences. That's eternal life separated from him. That's the requirement of justice. But the scripture also teaches that God demonstrated, he proved his love for you and for me. And that while we were sinners deserving of hell, he sent Christ to die for us. To take upon himself the punishment that we deserve. If today you will cry out to God and ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness by the power and authority of God's word. I say he'll do just that. You could be saved today. I can't pray that prayer for you. I would. But you can do business with God today. And maybe you're like me and you're in Christ. And oh, how you desire to see God move in your life, in your family, in your church, in your community. But maybe the Holy Spirit within you has revealed maybe there's some there's some stuff in your own life that's preventing God to move in that way. Maybe during this time of invitation at an altar or even at your seat, you can pray with David, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Show me my sin. Show me anything that's preventing revival from happening. Make me pure. Father, in Jesus' name, this invitation is not ours, so we won't manipulate it, rush it, hurry it. We'll just ask that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. As we respond, Father, help us to respond by faith. Thank you that your word never returns void. Have your will in Jesus' name. Amen.